Welcome to Science Stories. Welcome to Science Stories. Welcome to Science Stories. Welcome to Science Stories. Welcome to Science Alright, welcome everybody to another episode of Science Stories. Today I'm I'm going to talk with Dr. Romy Burks. Romy Burks, Dr. Romy Burks got her PhD from Notre Dame University and now is a professor at the Department of Biology at Southwestern University. So we are quite close, she's here north of Austin. And her lab focuses on investigating the basic life history and ecology of native and exotic populations of apple snails. Largely, uh, largely within the genus Pomacea and the idea of her lab is to understand why these snails succeed as exotic invasive species and also interesting <laughs> she also recently developed an interest for chocolate and she has become a chocolate educator how are you doing Dr. Burks? I'm doing well please call me Romy oh, okay I'll call you Romy then so Romy I think The, the best way to organize, since you're so all over the place, the best way to organize this is do three more or less sections. The first one, let's talk about science more, your, your research, your past research and your current research. Then we can talk a little bit about your chocolate, chocolate work. And then you have some interesting pedagogical advice and, and I have some random questions for you. Is that, is that good? Sounds good. All right. So if you don't mind, I'm going to take you back in time to your PhD work. And you used to work with Daphnia, which is a, an organism that I don't think it's well known by most non-scientific audience. So would you mind telling, telling us first what Daphnia are? Sure. Uh, Daphnia are very tiny, small uh, crustaceans that occur in fresh water. People might think um, they could be the freshwater equivalent of something they're more familiar with, like brine shrimp. Um, that they feed to, you know, aquatic pets and such. Uh, but Daphnia are uh, one species uh, within a community which we call zooplankton, which simply means animals in the water column. And what makes Daphnia particularly uh, focused on in, in aquatic work is that they are relatively large size compared to their peer species. And so with that large size comes increased predation pressure. It also increases their impact to, uh, or their influence on impacting water quality. And so what Daphnia do is that they filter algae out of the water column and increase clarity. And so they're a, a welcome species uh, within natural and, and even artificial water bodies. Yeah, and I encourage the audience to to type on YouTube Daphnia. This is D A P H N I A. I. Yeah, 
and see the way they swim it's pretty it's pretty funny the way they swim right they have these articulate legs and they use them to, to yeah they kind of hop um as they're swimming they're not particularly graceful swimmers um they're not particularly fast um and so they have uh, other means of trying to avoid being eaten than their swimming abilities per se um but yeah i i, I still find them rather you know cute uh for yeah, i think they're cute thing. too they're, they're funny and, and cute at the same time yeah. so your your most cited article actually talks about a dial horizontal migration that Daphnia perform. Can you can you explain what that means? I can. Uh, so that particular paper is uh, a review paper that mm -hmm. I wrote during my dissertation time. Prior to particularly my work in publications, most of the emphasis on Daphnia came from studying a process called dial vertical migration. So dial simply means daily, vertical means up and down. Migration means they move. And so dial vertical migration had been very well described for a couple hundred years. And so, as I said, these are large bodied organisms relative to the other ones in the water column. And so to uh, hide from predators in lakes that are stratified or deep, uh, your toes get cold, right? If you're, you know, deeper in the water, for sure, they yeah. would actually go down in the water at night and hide in that darker, colder, maybe not as well oxygenated water that fish do not like. And then um, they would do that during the day. And then at night they would rise up, migrate up and uh, filter and feed and do that repeatedly. However, uh, what I looked at in particular was uh, a suite of lakes and ponds that are not deep. So they're called, you can call them shallow, you can call them um, a or polymictic poly meaning they they mix a lot and so you don't get these gradients in temperature and dissolved oxygen that you do in deep stratified lakes so they could go down to the bottom and hang out there but it's not going to do them much good because everything else is also already down there so the idea is that in these systems that there is uh, a phenomenon of where individuals will move from say the middle of a lake or the open water into the literal zone so they'll move horizontally horizontally across the lake uh, compared to vertically they probably do move vertically and sort of like it's not just strictly all horizontal and they're at the top but they're probably at the bottom of these um, shallow lakes as well but the point is they are not in as much abundance in an open water where their predation rates would be higher. Yeah, and actually following up on that, another of your study shows that it's kind of a forced migration, right? Because when when there are no predators, the, Daphn the Daphnids only occur in macrophytes around 27% of the time or 27% or, or of the population. But however, it was 70 to 80% of the Daphnis hiding in the, in the macrophytes when there were roaches or perch around. Yeah, so um, roach is not like the American roach. Roach is a fish in Europe. And so a lot of this work that I did was in shallow systems in um, Northern Europe, particularly in Denmark. Um, it has a, a lot of um, planktivorous fish, fish that eat zooplankton. 
And so, yeah, so it, it's not advantageous for them to hang out in the macrophytes unless they have to. Um, it's, you know, there's not as much water flow uh, through there, so filtering is likely compromised. Um, the plants themselves are not necessarily hospitable. Um, and, you know, it, it has to be energetically costly, right? You, you just mentioned they're not, you know, they don't look like they're really sleek yeah. swimmers that are, you know, winning Olympic medals of zooplankton. So, uh, you know, they're, again, relatively big organisms. So it costs them something um, to migrate. Uh, and so the selection force has to be pretty strong. Yeah, actually, I found something interesting in in the experiment you performed in which you compared the migration rates when you used real macrophytes and plastic macrophytes, like simulating the, the, mm -hmm. the macrophytes. And you found that, that they occurred more in plastic macrophytes versus the real ones, indicated that there's some chemical avoidance from the macrophytes against the Daphnia. My question is, why would the macrophytes try to repel this zooplankton? Well, so I don't think the macrophytes may be, you know, um, evolutionarily selected for, re for repelling zooplankton or Daphnia, because in essence, Daphnia would eat algae and those algae would, com you know, um, compete for light with macrophytes. With the chemicals that are probably influencing zooplankton that are macrophyte derived are probably intended to also depress uh, phytoplankton or algae because that's their direct competitor for light and nutrients. I think it's probably a, an indirect secondary effect that you know daphnids don't do as well uh, in the presence of you know those cues. But again, uh, survival first, so predatory cues will trump right the cost of being in those macrophytes mm -hmm. and i i promise this is the last question of Daphnia, okay. and because this is really you did such a long time ago um <laughs> it's such a long time ago yeah uh, i found sadly it's so very true i found fascinating that daphnia grows less in the presence of predator chemical cues do you know why that happens so it's first of all i think it's a really interesting result but i am I'm trying to understand what mechanism could be behind that. Do you, do you know how that happens and why that happens? Uh, I can speculate, of course. Um, you know, mechanistically, I don't know exactly why it happens. Um, but if you're looking, if you're a daphnid or sort of any uh, large-bodied organism, you have a couple of choices. Get big, all right, and put all of your energy into size that gives certain advantages or uh, reproduce. Uh, put that shunt that energy into reproduction. So I expect that the presence of predatory cues say, hey, it's not a good idea to be a big Daphnid. I can, if I can stay a small Daphnid and, you know, shunt that energy, maybe there's a switch somewhere that says this cue suppresses this, you know, growth enzyme and it's converted into reproductive effort. I see, because I imagine those predators are also visual predators, so the bigger yeah. you are, the higher chances you are of getting predated, right? Yeah, because you don't you don't see it um, so much in tactile predators um, like invertebrates, dragonflies, stuff mm -hmm. like that. All right, now can, let's move on to Pomacea, that is your your bread and butter. This is the famous apple snail. It's one of many apple snails. 
and you have several ongoing projects regarding phylogeography, hybridization, invasive species, and actually you've traveled quite a, a bunch because of this invasive snail. First of all, I find that I find that it's pretty cool that one of the species that you work with, that is called Pomacea canaliculata, was described by Lamarck. Can you tell the audience who Lamarck is and why why is this in, important? Uh, sure, John Baptiste Lamarck was a um, 19th century um, biologist that was starting to really think about ideas regarding evolution. He kind of had pieces of the puzzle, but he didn't have a very good understanding for how it um, was a mechanism of inheritance of individuals that already had some traits. So um, when I think of Lamarck, I can't help but think about Rudyard Kipling's Just So stories. So like how the elephant got its trunk, how the camel got its hump, how the leopard got its spots. And those are beautifully written Victorian children's stories, but they are, you know, evolutionarily incorrect. You know, the leopard did not get its spots by being painted on, and then it had kittens, and all of those kittens had spots because, you know, the mother was painted. No, that's not how it works, right? Something else resulted in uh, painted painted spots made the, you know, leopard better, and it reproduced, thus, you know, taking that uh, evolution through uh, genetically through inheritance. So Lamarck is often, you know, um, uh, considered a, a precursor to Darwin, um, uh, again, and also occasionally misunderstood. Um, the other Pomacia um, maculata is actually um, named from uh, de Bournier, who was a French naturalist, um, that it was also competing with Darwin to sort of describe taxa of South America. And so there's some interesting, uh, there's a lot of South American history tied up with um, these, you know, kind of naturalist quests where they would go out and navigate I, and describe species. And since you mentioned South America, this actually took you there, right? You you went to their yeah. home, to, to their natural home range, right? How, how, how was that experience? Uh, it's, it's, it was phenomenal. I would like to do it more. And again, um, it was a curiosity of conversations and that, um, a colleague, Mariana Mirhoff, uh, was actually working in Denmark. One of the summers that I was working in Denmark and I had just taken my job at Southwestern and the snails had just kind of appeared in my lab from a student bringing them in. And, you know, we were talking regular shallow lake Daphnia stuff and I'm like oh yeah I have these snails and she's like oh yeah those snails they're in my you know backyard pond and I'm like oh no they're not and she's like yes they are and I'm like oh okay uh and so that started a, a very nice set of collaborations and projects where uh, I was able to go to Uruguay actually see the snails in their native habitat understand the importance of their role in um those wetland systems and also learn um, a lot about just biodiversity in general. And the the reason why you why you study these snails is because here they're an invasive species, right? Yeah. So um, I had a student again right when I started 
at Southwestern 20-ish years ago that was a volunteer at Armin Bayou Nature Center in Houston. And they were one of the first places in the state of Texas where these snails um, became established. And she came into my office and said, oh, I hear you're an ecologist, I'm Becca. Um, and, you know, I want to study these snails. And I'm like, okay, yeah, okay, sure. I don't know who you are. Um, she later comes back and there's a note on my chair that's like, snails in lab, love Becca. And I'm like, okay, who's Becca? How did she even get in the lab? And then I'm silly because I think a snail is, you know, the size of a quarter. And I reach my hand in this bucket and come back with something that is, you know, baseball sized. And then I was like, oh, okay. A couple weeks after that, the Texas Parks and Wildlife uh, department called and said, oh, I hear you have these snails. We just prohibited them. I was like, oh, okay. So they're like, you can have them, but you have to pay us money and get a permit. And that's where it all started. And then I decided I could not do Daphnia and apple snails well together. And so I made a choice to sort of go down the snail pathway. And this species is, or, or, or this genre, I guess, is pretty, it's a pretty tough species. You have an experiment in which you buried them under the sand and you left them there, like, if I'm right, around 30 days, and they still survived? Can you tell us about yeah, so that? Yeah, the experiment, experiment? was uh, 48 days long in, in Uruguay in summer, um, so uh, December and January. And, yeah, we buried them in sand in the um, sort of back garden of our rental house. And... Um, there was quite a bit of survival and even later reproduction of those that did survive um, after even 48 days. So this the experiment is, is basically you just bury them in the sun yep. and, then, and then wait until they either died or just survive? Yeah, we checked them for mortality um, every day, I think. Every, yeah, every day. And, and that's amazing, right? I mean, it's a pretty tough species I guess that they are tough so if you I mean they're an old mollusk overall are old evolutionarily but the pomacea is as well and it has evolved to tolerate the you know very dramatic shifts in water availability so you have areas that you know are flooded in a wet season and dry in other seasons and that's where their uh, you know home is and so they can persist by just taking their operculum, which is the covering that um, the foot, the muscle part is attached to. And then they can just kind of reel that in. If you think of about it as a revolving door that is stuck. And so if you've ever had to push really hard on the revolving door, it's not going anywhere. Um, and it can be very difficult to, you know, get inside. Uh, and that's what they rely on to uh, save water, and then they reduce their metabolism and wait it out. That's that's pretty amazing. They just shut down there and let it resist. That's pretty interesting. So, something else that you study is the hybridization process that these two species have every now and then, right? And I found something that is interesting is that you say that hybridization in this case the, it may pro promote diversification and contribute to the survival of the evolutionary lineages which is a change in the in the usual 
paradigm of how scientists consider hybridization. They usually see it as a threat to diversity. Is, and, and here you say it might promote diversification. Can you explain that a little bit further, please? Yeah, I think um, one well, story there is, you know, a little bit longer and complicated. I think what you um, have to first look at is, you know, what what are people saying when they mean diversity? And so is it specific species diversity? All right, so that's everything that is one species, or is it also within species diversity? So if you look at Pomacia caniculata and Pomacia maculata, they have, um, they're only about eight to 9% uh, different as a species but within that species difference, and this is work that Ken Hayes has done during his dissertation, within there, they're two to 3% variable in that same kind of genetic region. So there's a huge amount of intra within the species diversity. Hybridization might uh, help promote that. And over, you know, many, many, many generations, uh, you might see emergence of a, of a new species from a hybrid. What was interesting with the hybrids, at least in South America, is that um, there was indication that uh, they found the hybrids in Japan and were suggesting that hybridization helped promote them being invasive in that context. So that, uh, but the reality is that the context of being invasive was not what, you know, um, hybridization yielded. They were they were hybridizing in their native range before they got taken up and moved to, you know, Southeast Asia. I see, I see. And then, Romy, finally, I saw that that you you recently gave a talk about using eDNA to confirm the removal of an invasive species. In this case, the, the snails. Um. So eDNA E stands for environmental DNA. Can you tell us how that method works, please? Sure. So this is a um, lovely collaborative project that I have with um, my colleague, Matt Barnes at Texas Tech University. And curiously, um, Matt Barnes was one of my first undergraduate researchers on apple snails. And then he went and did his PhD also at Notre Dame. So we have some uh, shared heritage there. Uh, environmental DNA is the leftover bits of genetic material that end up in the environment. You can think about it as equivalent to, you know, crime scenes where you can, you know, pick up little specks of DNA and try to identify from whom they came. Obviously, you need information, right, to compare against in order to determine the origin of that material. Um, but the idea is that environmental DNA is a non-invasive way to sample um, because you can just filter water or take soil or, you know, um, collect particles from the air. And it's also um, something that is, you know, really practical to do in the sort of field monitoring range. It becomes a little bit more complex when you take it to the lab because you have to have the molecular skills to uh, extract the DNA, get all of the genetic material out of whatever it's in. And then um, what you would do with that material is that you 
have a, something that you're looking for. In our case, we're specifically looking right now for Pomacea maculata. So we have a little bit of DNA that we know will say this is only Pomacea maculata and not anything else, mm -hmm. um, which is important. You need it to be what you want it to be, but you also don't want it to be something else or similar that could yeah. get confused, yeah. right? And so we take our little uh, tag called a primer and we combine it with the DNA that we get out of the sample and it is used to quantify so you can actually figure out how much DNA is in that sample for that particular species. And so apple snows are a unique um, kind of test case in this idea of using environmental DNA because once they are reproductively uh, fecund and active, they lay bright pink bubblegum egg clutches above the water surface. You can't miss them. Uh, in fact, a lot of people, you know, confuse them for other things, most often frog eggs or, or you know, some other kinds of eggs, but they are bright pink. So why do you need eDNA if you can see bright pink egg clutches and say, oh, the snail is there? Um, the idea is that in an invasive context, um, once the snail is there and reproducing, you're kind of too late. Uh, and so you really want to have a proactive way to say, oh, well, look, we don't see any snails. We haven't caught any snails, but, you know, we have some snail DNA here indicating that this could be the next place that they um, expand. And that's critical, um, particularly in in Texas because we've had so many instances of large-scale flooding. And so people certainly move them around for whatever reasons, aquarium trades, bait trades, but most of the expansion in Texas is most likely due to flooding. Remy, when, when you describe this eDNA method, I think it, it works great for positive controls. So what, what you're describing the use for, like when you find eDNA and you haven't seen the snails, well, you know it's there, although you haven't yeah. seen him. I'm concerned, or not concerned, I'm just, ask, I'm just wondering how it works in the negative case. So if you don't find the eDNA, the, the DNA of these snails, how sure are you that the snails are not there? How sure are you, How what is their false negative rate? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Um, so one is you would certainly replicate the samples that you're taking uh, in the field. And so um, the sensitivity of the technique is quite high. So we can detect, you know, um, eDNA concentrations in order of one to the millionth. Oh, okay. So, yeah. so to the negative six. Yeah. So when it is not detected, we have some assurances that the sensitivity is really, really good. Um, now, you know, is it practical? We sampled in a place, you know, downstream and got snails, but if we had sampled upstream, maybe we wouldn't have got snails. And we just don't know enough about how genetic material moves around in the environment to, um, you know, to test that. And that's why even, I mean, it's amazing if you think about it that, you know, take the San Antonio River, for example, and, you know, the river walk tons of water flowing through there you know and we can take basically a cup full and tell you that there's snails wow. in there. um 
Yeah, yeah. And if you compare it to the man hours that you would need in order to sample and check like the the river, it would be insane. Yeah, right? it's it's still so we're doing this um at least the San Antonio project in concert with the San Antonio River Authority. So they are out there mm -hmm. um actually pulling out snails and and crushing egg clutches and we're looking at do you see the decline in environmental DNA over that time? And um, Cindy Bashura, one of the students, um, did a sort of intensive look during summer period. So summer, you would expect uh, more DNA activity in the system because the snails are active and reproducing. And what she saw was a decline in the eDNA across the increasing summer months. And so not an elimination by any means, there are still lots and lots of snails there, but it does seem that it's not, a, if there was no management or no re, no hand removal, I would just expect that to be exponential and just increase and increase and increase. I see. Romy, let's do our first break and then okay. we come back and talk about chocolate. Sounds good. All right, let's see what songs you picked. You know the bed feels warmer Sleeping here alone You know I dream in color And do the things I want You think you got the best of me Think you've had the last laugh Bet you think that everything good is gone Think you left me broken down Think that I'll come on and back Doesn't kill you makes you stronger Stand a little taller So before the break we were listening to Stronger by Kelly Clarkson and now we're listening to Seasons of Love by Rent. Uh, yeah, cast of rent. Yeah, the cast of rent. And you were saying that it's pretty hard to. It was pretty hard. A uh, pretty hard exercise. Why do you say that? Uh, it's so many choices, I guess. Yeah, it's and it's hard to pick only four, right? It's hard to pick only four, and then like you know, are they songs I listen to the car? Are they songs that you know are Science. I don't know. I just it, it was it was hard. So do you know do you know why you picked these particular two songs? Uh, I do. So uh, Rent is my favorite musical, um, and I'm a musical theater 
fan. Um, so that one was pretty straightforward. And uh, the stronger is just, I think it's a good, like, uh, you know, reminder that, you know, sometimes things are hard and you just, you know, keep going. Nice. So I'm really interested in your chocolate journey. I know from listening to one of uh, a podcast that you've been a guest in that your chocolate adventure started as an evolutionary exercise for your students. Is, is that right? Yes. So can you can you tell us about that and how did that turn into almost a lifestyle, I would say? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I was teaching an invertebrate ecology course at Southwestern early in my career, and I chose a textbook. Um, the authors are Bruska and Bruska, and it is really a graduate level textbook, but there at the time was not anything kind of else that had the same information. And this particular book deals uh, a lot with phylogenies or trees, so looking for the common uh, denominator between species and between big groups of, of organisms. And my students were having just a real hard time um, conceptualizing that in this book. And um, it was frustrating them and it was frustrating me because the book was just very much centered on this concept. So if you didn't get it, like you couldn't move forward. Yeah. And so I uh, actually had a crazy idea in the shower to demonstrate this concept using what I will call candy bars, American candy bars. Um, at the time I called them chocolate. I wouldn't really, we can get to what chocolate means in a minute, but. That's my next question, um, yeah. Yeah, so it's, uh, if you take, you know, a chocolate candy bar and um, you can consider it from a biology type of view, phenotypically plastic, it's literally plastic, it's wrapped in plastic, mm -hmm. but depending on the season, it might be a different color, right? Depending on uh, the marketing, it may have, you know, different patterns outside, it, it changes, you know, willy-nilly. And so, um, but if you look at the inside, so you look at the guts uh, or the genes, the genetics, noting that candy bars do not have genes, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, you can look at that and you can um, start to think about how you would classify these. So uh, if you can't do them because they all have brown wrappers, what about if they all have, you know, milk chocolate? All right. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you d divide between milk chocolate and dark chocolate. Well, that's not a great choice because they both have chocolate. Right. Yeah. And so you would have to sort of define that the character is really the addition of dairy. It's mm. not the chocolate, but it's the dairy that makes the difference. Um, nuts would also not be a good character because there are too many kinds of nuts. There's peanuts and almonds and pistachios and macadamia nuts and coconuts. And, and that's how you tell them what's an informative character and what's not an informative yeah. character. Yeah, so, um, and if you do that in a very simplistic way, you can um, have the students construct a cladogram, which is just a bifurcating yes or no uh, type of relationship. And each one of those is a hypothesis. And that's what a tree is. It's, it's still a hypothesis mm -hmm. that is informed by, you know, more and more information. Mm -hmm. And as we look at biodiversity overall, 
you know, we could clump some things, lump some things together, but as we gain information, you know, those are going to be, you know, picked apart to be distinctive. So um, I did this and they could also kind of check the historical record. So, you know, could they make sure that um, Milky Way, right, didn't precede Snickers because Snickers was before Milky Way in, you know, the timeline. Um, you can also ask, you know, interesting questions like, did M&Ms come together to make a bar or did a bar split up to mm, make M&Ms? Nice, nice. That's um, so interesting. They're both, in terms of the tree, they're both one-step processes. So, yeah, but, uh, that's where it started. Nice. So, what is chocolate? Oh, it's a good question. <laughs> it's a very, very good question. Um, to me, as a biologist, because all of my um, perceptions of chocolate are framed through who I am as an individual. Of course. Uh, I define chocolate as any edible product made from the seeds slash beans. They're used equivalently uh, of Theobroma cacao, which is a tree that uh, produces chocolate. So in that context, white chocolate that is made of cocoa butter. So the beans themselves are about half fat, half cocoa solid. And that cocoa butter is often shipped off for cosmetics and whatever, but you can make good white chocolate with it. If you had, for example, vegetable oil and sugar and call it white chocolate, no, there's no, there's no chocolate substance uh, in there, be it a, a fat or a solid. Um, People will, will disagree. In fact, I just took on a role as um, chairperson of the glossary committee for the Fine Chocolate Industry Association um, because there are not really good set definitions uh, for these terms. Um, you know, and you know, I say candy bars now because the first ingredient is sugar, but some fine chocolate, some very, very um well prepared and uh environmentally conscious chocolates still have sugar as their first ingredient depending on how much milk powder or mm -hmm. cocoa butter that they might put in there so um i tend to personally uh migrate toward the chocolates that have cacao as their first ingredient it's the majority um but there's a whole industry of confections and obviously baking and Robbie, chocolate tears. If I heard correctly, you're using the word cacao and cocoa differently. So the, the, these are two different things, right? Um, technically, no. Technically, no. Okay. <laughs> so um, again, this is the kind of a biology maybe, or, or me. Um, I tend to use cacao when I'm talking about the tree or the beans that are from the tree before they have undergoing a lot of processing. And so once they become a processed good, like powder mm -hmm. or chips, chocolate chips, cocoa chips, uh, then I tend to use the more common cocoa uh, word. But if you look at, for example, uh, West African harvest, they'll, they'll use the word cocoa. Um, so it's somewhat of a uh, matter of who you 
talk with. Um, it could be better distinguished in the industry overall. I see. So I, I did a little bit of research about chocolate and I found two articles that are pretty interesting. One that was published in Nature that says that chocolate can increase your total plasma antioxidant capacity. What other health benefits does it have besides this total plasma antioxidant capacity? Do you know? I, I do know, yeah. <laughs> um, so first, when you talk about um, antioxidant potential, that's huge because antioxidants are uh, important in many pathways in health, in neural pathways. They you know, can um, result in apoptosis or cell death of cancer cells. They're important for um, uh, matching up free radicals or small molecules that are damaging DNA and all this. So, so that's a huge kind of umbrella of um, positive effects. Most often the other ones talked about uh, in chocolate are um, sort of in three areas. One of those is cardiovascular health. And so the flavonoids, the chemical that are working as the antioxidants in chocolate are good at um, vasodilation. So they increase the diameter of your blood vessels, which means the blood flows better. Mm -hmm. um, and so all sorts of things that would be associated with um, better blood flow, i.e. lower blood pressure, um, potentially better cholesterol, um, uh, less indication or likelihood of stroke, heart attack, all of that. So there's a world of cardiovascular effects. The other big area that people talk about is neural effects. All right. So when you eat chocolate, what's happening there um well it's happy in your brain because you're stimulating serotonin and dopamine we don't know in nearly enough about how serotonin and dopamine pathways work in the brain they're ridiculously um complex uh but it is that you know feel good um emotion that you can get uh, from eating chocolate. You get it also from eating sugar. So, you know, the endorphins, there's kind of a balance. I'd prefer to get it from more chocolate than mm -hmm. sugar. Um, so there's a whole suite of neural effects um, that people talk about. And then um, in addition for other aspects of health, um, you know, there's kind of a random assortment of things that chocolate has been um uh, characterized to do. Um, one of those is actually also um, play with blood sugar. And so the even though we think of chocolate, most people think of chocolate as a sugar product, with less sugar, it can change the um, insulin and glycogen dynamics within um, your digestive systems. Oh. And so um, thing that you know diabetics can't have sugar or sorry can't have chocolate is too generalizable of, of of a statement right they shouldn't have the sugar kind of course right yeah but um so yeah so people are very interested in kind of the um gut health digestive issues associated with chocolate cardiovascular is probably the number one and and the neurological effects thanks and Romy, the other article I found was published in Science, actually, and it says that the Mayans use chocolate as currency. What do you think about that? 
Uh, I think that there are tons of uses for um, chocolate that are fascinating. And so, yes, it was certainly used for uh, currency in the indigenous cultures in, in South America. It's documented in, you know, um, unfortunately, the uh, colonialization and uh, overtaking of many Mayan and Aztec populations by uh, Europeans. Uh, so currency is one. Um, it has been used as a gift, right? So it's recognized as a valuable, that kind of goes with the currency, but but just as a gift in in and of itself. Um, I personally, it's, you know, it's a commodity on the New York Stock Exchange. We can think about chocolate as a flavor, even though it's a combination of so many chemicals to make that flavor, which is interesting in contrast to vanilla, which is predominantly one mm -hmm. chemical that gives that flavor. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, it's a, you know, it's a livelihood. Um, there are people that are, you know, dedicated to the culture and uh, harvest of chocolate that benefits, you know, people around the world, including myself. So I think it could be anything. What do you think of, of the role of chocolate in our society nowadays? I talk a lot about that. Um, my general philosophy is that I can connect most anything to chocolate in some way, shape, or form. I think it represents a great teaching tool for uh, people to think about the choices that they're making and the implications of you know what buying the Hershey bar, pick on Hershey because it's kind of most available, mm -hmm. um, compared to the you know single origin fine chocolate traceable uh no child or slave labor associated with it um so i think that one it's important to think about it that way i think the other thing is that it can really feed into all of the sort of foodie experiences that um, have increased in popularity globally so that it's not just i'm going to eat this bar of chocolate because i'm hungry I'm going to eat this bar of chocolate because I want to enjoy myself, like sipping a glass of wine, right? I want to experience what flavors I can taste in this chocolate that were not added in there. They weren't added to taste like sour cherry, but they taste like sour cherry because it's, you know, harvested from you know, Peru or Madagascar or wherever. Um, and and it provides a way to to, you know, think about stories. And so there are a lot of Uh, human stories behind chocolate that I find fascinating. Um, when I started teaching about chocolate 15 years ago, you know, I could count the small makers on my hands. And now there's um, over 500 globally. I think the number is over 350 in the U.S., maybe higher. Um, that's still not a lot compared to what the market is. Mm -hmm. But all of those people come to chocolate in, you know, fascinating ways and bring their own sort of life experience to what um, they're putting out as a product. And so it's the perfect for me uh, inquiry based, you know, ask a question about chocolate, get a fascinating answer. Romy, 
in your website there's a ton of material that is really good do you want to share what your website is sure uh website and twitter and instagram are uh prof romi so p-r-o-f-r-o-m-i uh and so it would be www.profromi.com uh for the website and that is how you would find me and actually you offer talks to like to to give seminars and stuff and and there's one that is called the science behind chocolate that of course caught my attention could you Please give us a teaser of what would you talk in, um, in that talk? So, yeah, I do um, a number of different speaking arrangements, and I tend to talk with the people about what they want mm -hmm. me to talk about. Um, and so I just did one for um, a local high school, and they had their biology and chemistry courses um, come. And so in that case, I talked about what a species means. I talked about where you find the tree, how important pollination is. I see. Um, you know, kind of basic 101 biology, but then really talked about genetics and how um, cacao genetics is kind of is behind the curve compared to other foods. And then on the chemistry side, um, a lot of the conversations that we've had, what is an antioxidant and what does that mean? And you know, how do you know that there are antioxidants in your chocolate? It's not just about percentage, it's also about how it's being processed. Chocolate is also fermented, which a lot of people don't know. And so you can do, you know, the chemistry of fermentation uh, as part of uh, a seminar. That's and so, really interesting. So if people are interested in, in providing or offering these talks, they can contact you, right? Absolutely. So Romy, in my class, then we also do, we do a lot of neuroscience and then a lot of the physics and engineering is associated with production. Romy, are you okay if we do our final break and then we come back and I'm going to hit you with some random questions? Sounds good. All right. Come with me and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. Take a look and you'll see into your imagination We'll begin with a spin Traveling in the world of my creation What we'll see will defy Explanation Talk about where I do without just hold the smile falling in and out of love, ashamed and proud of together all the while. You can never say never while we don't know. So right now we're listening to Never Say Never by The Fray and before we were listening to Pure Imagination that is from uh, the Willy Wonka movie, right? Charlie and Chocolate Factory. Yeah, the original 1971 with Gene Ah, okay. Actually, I was going to ask you and I'll ask you right now I was going to ask you if Forrest Gump 
Life is like a box of chocolate sin. What's your favorite chocolate movie scene ever? But I guess not, right? Um, that's hard. Um, it, it, it might be. It might be just because it's it's such an iconic film. Um, and I like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Um, there's a huge critique that I use about it culturally that, you know, um, but yeah. What What's the critique? Uh, the critique is that, um, you know, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory was written by Roald Dahl and mm -hmm. um, he has had some... Uh, letters and issues about whether or not uh, he had um, Nazi sympathy, some anti-Semitism um, running through some of his overall works, um, and that uh, he had originally considered Charlie and the Chocolate Factory to, to have Charlie as a uh, black um, boy, but was kind of persuaded publishers to uh, increase the whiteness associated with that and so there's a big contrast between how whiteness and darkness or blackness is portrayed again looking at it from you know our modern yep. kind of perspectives um, but it's you know all the kids are uh, most minus Charlie are you know well to do um, mm -hmm. waspy yeah you know, children with overbearing parents. Yeah. Um, but and there's it, a dark yeah. side of the Oompa Loompas, you know, mm -hmm. like if you read the book, where does he get them from? He goes to Africa and yeah. basically, you know, puts them in a box with holes and brings them back. So there's, <laughs> you could read into it more or less maybe of what we're all intended, but it provides for good discussion. Mm -hmm. Is there any other scene in, in general that you like about that includes chocolate of a movie or of a series or anything? uh i mean i my my well now 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 that i thought about it okay my favorite chocolate scene um and this would surpass the forest gump is from the movie chocolate um with johnny depp and um but it's about the mayor of the town who um had been very Uh, skeptical of this, you know, new chocolate shop opening, and had been very um, religious and and determined not to have chocolate at Lent. And he ends up in the kind of has a nervous breakdown. He ends up in the chocolate shop in the front window, and he basically eats so much chocolate that he passes out, and he's found in the chocolate in the um, in the front window. That's that's my favorite. I, I have to confess, I haven't I haven't seen that. Yeah, I yeah, I will check it out. Is it good? Is it good? Do you recommend it? It's good. It's a good book. Okay. Yeah, I do recommend it. So, Romy, Southwestern University does not have a graduate program, so all the research that you do is done by undergrad students, and this may seem like a super hard endeavor, endeavor, but you did so great in it that you even published about it. Can you tell us, or can you tell the secret to working with undergrads, if there's any? Uh, I, I think there's a few. Um, I think the number one is uh, to treat them with respect and that in 
possession of the intellect that can make contributions and not to say, oh, you're just an undergraduate, what you're going to do is not going to matter. Um, so I think one is to build their idea of what a scientist is from the beginning and say, you know, you're a scientist now, let's do it. Um, the second is, I think, to really give them um, ownership in the project so that they can sort of develop um, and that's been very important for, you know, research on snails. They're like, oh, I don't know about snails, what am I gonna do? But I, you know, be amazed if they get, you know, a piece and they're like, oh, this is really cool. And it relates to, um, I have a student that will go to medical school and she's interested in looking at like the detection rates of cancer cells compared to eDNA. And so it's that type of thinking that, you know, you really want to encourage because it doesn't matter what you do research on. Um, it could be anything. Yeah. The, you know, the experience and really saying this is something that, you know, I did. I got these results. No one else in the world knows this as much as I do. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this is my contribution, even if it's, you know, small or singular. That's awesome. Yeah, you're right. You're so right. I also noticed in your website you have a lot of pictures and one is of your molecular god that is named Juju. <laughs> what's the story what, what behind that? Yeah, what's going on there? So uh, I, I have not been a molecular ecologist for all of my career. Um, however, once we um, started picking up snails in, in Uruguay actually, and uh, we're not what we thought they were, um, it required me to learn some genetics. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I went and actually learned how to um, do the barcoding, determine the identities, all that kind of stuff with my colleague Ken Hayes and the University of Hawaii. And they have um, like Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head, but in Star Wars kind mm -hmm. of gear mm -hmm. among their PCR machines. And the more that I just kind of went through molecular labs, whether they're ecology or biochemistry or, you know, cancer lab, whatever, it seems that there is a culture of um, ritual and spirituality that is, to me, like if I was an anthropologist, it's fascinating. Yeah. Because, um, and, and for me it works because I, I can't even imagine those molecules getting together. Like it's just too hard for my brain to think on that side. And so it is not magic, it is science. I mean, there are principles that, that occur there, but you can't always see them. And in molecular life, you can't always explain it. Um, I'm not super great at doing sort of troubleshooting one thing at a time. That's not my great strength. And so, you know, I'll wave some hands and say, okay, it could be this, it could be that. Um, but you know did you have on your yellow socks and did you do the hokey pokey and you know whatever needed did you pray to the molecular gods when you did this pcr and if you didn't you know go back and just do it because it, you know in, in that way it's some odd faith that you have in the process that it will work yeah i agree 100 percent. it's it's definitely an interesting anthropological phenomenon that I'm I actually I'm gonna look up if somebody has already looked into this because it's it's weird right that scientists are praying to molecular gods right 
I haven't seen. I, I've I've looked casually over, you know, a couple, but I haven't seen anything that I know written. But I think it would be a fascinating, yeah, it would be so know, funny. perspective or, or article paper. Have a picture of all the different, you know, sort of got because it it it's fairly. I mean, and if they don't have God, they certainly have ritual. Yeah, yeah. Right? They right. might not have an an you know an actual icon at which they chant or you know, whatever, but they certainly have, you know, I only do this procedure on this day at two o'clock because if I do it at four o'clock, it's not going to work, mm-hmm. you know? So the, the power of the brain in sort of determining those, and we do the same thing when we, you know, are doing statistics and we're waiting for, you know, significance. We go, please let it be significant. Yeah, 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 you're right. Yeah. Who are we, you know, who are we doing to? It's just much more, I think, pronounced when you can't, see the processes going on in terms of molecular Robin, in your in your website it says life philosophies always be reading a book stop and remember the moment be a good friend pet the dogs which i think it's a great life philosophy what are you reading right now what am i reading right now uh i am reading uh delicious oh really uh, this this book called delicious by robert about, dunn about taste oh i can't remember that i don't actually remember the author that i'm looking it's a it's it's recent yeah yeah it's a great i, I read it recently it's a great book yeah yeah i didn't actually pay attention to the the um author but it was recommended to me from a, from a chocolate friend actually this this author robert dunn he's such a great science communicator he has so many books in science communication He has amazing stories about heart, all the fauna that lives in your house, which is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, he's he's a really interesting author. Romy, did you see the picture I sent you that I, w- I generated with the artificial yeah. intelligence? I did, yes. Can you guess what I typed in the prompt to get that image? I'm gonna guess snail and chocolate. So, yes, it was snail and cacao, actually. Okay. And can you guess the, the, the artist in this, this, the style of which artist I tried? Oh, the style of which artist? I didn't think about that. I don't know. Dolly, maybe? So this is my one of my gir- my girlfriend's favorite painters, and it's Kandinsky. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, I, I would put that on my wall. It's a, it's a really cool one, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Romy, did you have a good time? I did have a good time. Thank you so much for being part of Science Stories. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening to Science Stories. Wow. Wow. Wow.